Welcome to the D.C. Bar Community's Law Student Podcast with your hosts, Melody Almansor, third-year student at Georgetown University Law Center. Elena Hoffman, first-year student at the George Washington University Law School. Renata Mitchell, second-year student at the George Washington University Law School. And Alexis Bird, third-year student at UDC David A. Clark School of Law. You're listening to Let's Brief It. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for listening to Let's Brief It, the podcast made for law students by law students. I'm Renata Mitchell. And I'm Alexis Bird. We hope you have your passports ready because today we're going to be talking about trends in international law. We'll talk a little bit about trade, sanctions, and anti-corruption activities around the globe. To really dive deeper into the issues, we're joined today by our guest, Shari Brown, Shari is a partner at Troutman Sanders, where her practice includes white-collar and government investigations, due diligence and corporate compliance, and the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, among many other topics. Shari is a recognized leader in ethics, compliance, and internal investigations involving fraud, corruption, and trade controls for U.S. and global clients. Her projects have taken her virtually every continent. Before joining Troutman Sanders, Shari chaired white-collar defense, corporate compliance, and anti-corruption practice groups at two international law firms. She additionally worked as an ethics and compliance officer for Mobile Oil Corp. and as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So before we brief it and jump into the issues, can you tell us a little bit about your career path and how you entered the international law practice area? Sure. None of the things that I practice today was taught in law school when I attended. (laughs) And that was at Georgetown Law, which is uh, a school people have heard of. Uh, But... um, It's interesting. You go to law school, they teach you how to think, how to solve problems as a lawyer. But I was a law clerk. I was a federal prosecutor. I worked in a major corporation where, among other things, I eventually learned um, um, about certain international issues that affected the company. And as a result of that, I was then promoted into a position there where eventually I was responsible for some international-related issues, such as Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, mm-hmm. uh, U.S. anti-boycott law, U.S. trade sanctions and trade controls. And with that, I um, left the company and uh, joined a law firm as a partner. And when I joined the law firm as a partner, guess what I practiced? Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, (laughs) anti-boycott, and trade controls, because that's what I learned uh, at uh, Mobile Oil, now known as ExxonMobil. But then I've expanded that to include anti-money laundering and export controls and USA Patriot Act um, uh, anti-money laundering and terrorist financing. Mm -hmm. So it was um, an aggregation of different experiences that have led me to this broad-based international law practice. So in simplest terms, or in layman's terms, kind of international law is a set of standards that apply between nations. The United Nations, the largest and most internationally represented intergovernmental organization in the world, has developed a body of international law known as the UN Charter. Over the years, more than 500 multilateral treaties have been deposited within the uh, UN or with the UN Secretary General, spanning from topics on human rights to disarmament and protection of the environment. 
In the, the United States, these multilateral treaties are written into law by the legislature and signed into law and enforced by the president. And from time to time, the Supreme Court uses customs of other nations as persuasive authority to interpret the U.S. Constitution. Uh, one example or case law example is Robert E. Simmons. So to sum it up, you know, international law plays a large role in American politics and jurisprudence. Some major sources of international law in the United States are not even the products of like treaties, though. They're actually just products of Congress and the president alone. So it's often said that Congress never acts proactively. They usually react. So could you tell us a little bit about the history behind FCPA, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act? Um, you know, like how did it come about? What encouraged Congress to, to implement this law? Well, apparently in the 70s and, and earlier, um, the U.S. Congress became aware that American businesses operating overseas were engaging in bribery and corrupt practices in order to win business. In short, they were paying off uh, government officials in foreign countries in order to win big contracts or in order to have their products purchased. And um, the Congress uh, was offended by this, and Americans were outraged by this, that we in the U.S. would go abroad to, and bribe in order to win business. And so the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, or FCPA, was a direct response to a lot of the um, publicity and media around large U.S. companies going overseas and bribing to get business. Bribery occurs in the U.S. as well, uh, but the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act is an extraterritorial law that expressly uh, relates to foreign bribery and bribery of public officials or foreign public officials. And um, it was passed in 1977, amended several times, and uh, was really actively enforced beginning more in the 90s. And since then, um, the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission have been on a roll in having huge enforcement actions, collecting um, billions of dollars in fines and penalties from companies that uh, apparently continue to engage in bribery and corruption. Uh, the law has been tightened. It applies more extensively, and yet bribery and corruption continues. Why, I think? Because some companies and individuals think they can get away with it, that they won't get caught. And then when they do get caught, the penalties can be really excessive and um, people go to jail and there has to be disgorgement of the proceeds from the bribery. It seems that FCPA has a multifaceted approach to protecting American interests. How do you feel the enforcement of FCPA has affected the U.S.'s political economy? I would say that, in general, um, the FCPA has caused more U.S. companies to engage in more ethical practices mm -hmm. overseas, and many companies have been able to use the fact that they um, engage in business ethically as a competitive advantage when they are dealing in countries that care about um, good governance and good business practices. There is an argument, though, 
that um, the FCPA has created what some people call an unlevel playing field. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that there are still some countries that um, may have laws that prevent um, paying um, bribery or um, making corrupt payments to officials in order to win business a crime, but they do not enforce their laws. There are many countries that have very rigorous anti-corruption laws on the books, and yet um, they may be reportedly amongst the most corrupt countries in the world. So the difference between the U.S. and other countries with respect to trade is that our enforcers actively prosecute companies for bribing overseas, and companies pay a very high price. They can pay millions of dollars, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, or even as much as a couple of billion dollars um, in fines and penalties to settle these cases, depending on how large the contract was that they won as a result of the bribery. But there are countries that have very rigorous uh, anti-bribery laws on the books, but the way to do business in that country is to bribe in order to get business. And so there are some in the U.S. who feel that they are disadvantaged because the U.S. government has been, in effect, naive in expecting that it could exert its will and its good governance practices from the FCPA on other foreign countries when, in fact, those countries have their own laws and they don't even enforce them. I think on the whole, um, it has not hurt U.S. business in the way that they thought it would in the 70s when it was first passed. And with the increase in enforcement and with the cooperation between our prosecutors at the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission and other prosecutors in foreign countries, whether it's the United Kingdom or France or Germany or um, China or Canada, the U.S. is kind of the leader in how to put these cases together successfully so that um, you can win your cases and also recover the proceeds from the crime. And they have... Um, collaboration and training with other country prosecutors and our FBI, uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation, coordinates with other country investigators so that if they pass a law that makes it a crime to bribe in order to get business, um, they can actually enforce that law effectively and have an impact on whether those foreign uh, companies in those countries actually um, engage in ethical business practices. Mm -hmm. So I think that having this law has had a very um, positive impact on those countries that want to do better, that want to have more ethical business practices, because they have also passed laws that have more teeth in them today. For example, Germany, the United Kingdom, France, Italy, all of these countries have passed new anti-corruption laws in China, um, and yet um, corrupt practices continue, and that is because, um, you know, I don't think we will ever get rid of greed. 
Earlier, you mentioned that FCPA has gone through a number of amendments since it was first passed. Do you see any additional amendments on the rise given, you know, some of these changes that are happening abroad too? Well, um, the business community has always felt that to the extent that a big company takes the time, spends the resources, hires the personnel to help that company ensure that it complies with the FCPA and that it conducts due diligence on all of its foreign partners and that it um, monitors its payments and it has really good policies and procedures to prevent bribery and corruption, those companies feel they should be rewarded for having such good programs and procedures and training for employees, Mm -hmm. and that there should be something called a compliance defense. Currently, there is no compliance defense um, to the uh, NFCPA um, violation. Mm -hmm. You may get credit for having a good compliance program. You may get credit for having good training, but you do not have an absolute defense if one of your employees, who I will call a rogue employee, Mm -hmm. engages... Of course they're a rogue employee. Our our U.S. companies don't really um, (laughs) seek to engage in, um, you know, making corrupt payments. But if you have a rogue employee in a company that has good compliance programs, procedures, training, ethics, mm-hmm. the tone at the top of the leadership is ethical. Yeah. And not only do they um, talk the talk, but they walk the walk. Mm-hmm. Um, why should you be penalized to the same extent or at all if this rogue employee on their own decided, mm-hmm. well, they were going to boost their numbers and win this contract circumventing all of your controls, all of your procedures in order to um, win a contract through bribery. So there is currently no compliance defense, but um, organizations such as the Chamber of Commerce and other business organizations are really pushing for that. And the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission, the two agencies that actively enforce the FCPA, will heavily consider all of a company's compliance efforts, but we really don't have something that is a a full affirmative defense. Um, One thing that has happened in recent uh, months, uh, based on the current administration's view that um, U.S. companies are disadvantaged and don't really have a fair shot at contracts because of the FCPA because they're not allowed to bribe. One view (laughs) of the current administration as expressed um, by uh, some folks in the White House is that the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act um, should be amended or even relaxed or repealed Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it expresses a naive view of how many countries in the world work. Another point of view could be, well, if you amend the FCPA to uh, water it down or if you repeal it, you will be giving permission to companies that have spent a lot of time and money training their employees to conduct themselves ethically. You would be saying, okay, we don't have to worry about the FCPA 
And in this particular foreign country we're doing business in, they don't enforce their existing anti-corruption laws, so just go crazy. You can bribe to win contracts. It's a slippery slope. It's not really where we want to be. I understand there is um, uh, legislation that has uh, been introduced to do that, but it has not moved um, anywhere in the Congress because when the um, current trend is more towards ethical uh, business, not only domestically but internationally, and good governance, um, repealing the FCPA would uh, send the wrong message, yeah. and companies that have really tried to do the right thing, it would just be a setback that would cause immeasurable harm. The other problem is... Think of quality control. If people can bribe in order to win a contract, say, for example, in the drug area or the construction area, what is to say that the person who won that construction contract actually is the most qualified to do it yeah. and will use the best materials to support that, um, that facility. We do not need cement to fail. We do not need bridges to fail. Mm -hmm. And corruption and corrupt payments in order to win business would be the beginning of a complete qualitative breakdown, potentially, of a lot of work and projects that are um, bid and where people have to win them, mm -hmm. and in order to win them, they bribe. Well, of course, we have to <laughs> pick your brain on one of the most common news stories these days, sanctions, Venezuela, Iran, North Korea, Cuba. How, how do these various trade controls impact your clients and, and your work? Well, the reasons for U.S. trade controls usually have to do with um, a U.S. foreign policy goal or a U.S. national security goal. And so to the extent that um, the trade restrictions or trade controls affect um, national security, you will find that U.S. companies are, are generally very supportive of those trade controls because no one wants to say that their commercial interests exceeds um, a U.S. Uh, national yeah. security issue, uh, interest. On the other hand, uh, some U.S. foreign policy goals um, may, you may agree with them, you may not agree with them. Um, there are people who agree that Cuba should have um, uh, serious trade restrictions. There are other people who think that um, the sanctions against Cuba should be liberalized. There are people who are concerned about the impact of sanctions on uh, the people of Venezuela, mm -hmm. and there are other uh, people who feel that putting pressure on the current government of Venezuela is the only yeah. way to have regime change and restore democracy in Venezuela. So as aside from all those things, you should know that most large U.S. companies are free traders. They believe in um, free trade and with as few restrictions as possible. And to the extent that you are a company that was doing business, say, for example, in Venezuela, and there are restrictions that prevent you from doing business in the energy sector or, in, or with um, the Venezuelan government, whereas previously you provided contracts or did whatever, then that is going to impact your business and your bottom line, and there may be people who have to be laid off.
The U.S. has a menu of things they can do from targeted sanctions and restrictions, very limited to certain industries or certain people or certain entities. Those have the least harmful effect on the um, business activities of our U.S. companies. Or it could have sort of a hybrid where it really focuses its restrictions on the government and the government entities in that country. And you can still do business with the private sector in those countries. That's kind of a middle um, impact. And then um, we could have just complete um, sanctions where um, it's against the government, it's geographic, it's also specific parties, and the only um, trade you can have may relate to humanitarian things, such as medicine, medical devices, and agricultural or food products. And even in Iran, um, it is permissible um, to provide certain um, humanitarian-type relief or sales related to medicine and medical devices. And that's in part because the U.S. government believes that the people of certain countries usually are not the enemies of the United States. Right. It's government to government and a disagreement with the policies of certain governments or certain leaders in those countries. So U.S. companies are affected, U.S. persons are affected, but it's for um, a better, um, a larger goal that the U.S. government has that probably is good for all of us as U.S. citizens. Let's Brief It is a podcast created for law students. Do you have any advice for students interested in practicing in corporate compliance and or international law? Sure. Um, if your law school doesn't cover these topics, you may wish to join the D.C. Bar International Law Community because we have committees that um, have individual practitioners in law firms or in the World Bank or in other organizations that practice international law. For example, um, we cover um, immigration and human rights issues. We have an international dispute resolution and arbitration committee, so if you're interested in that. We also have an inter-American legal affairs committee, and those um, primarily deal with um, Latin American countries. We also have an international trade and investment and finance committee. And in connection with that, if you were doing mergers and acquisitions, and to the extent that um, the parties to the merger and acquisition were one was a U.S. company and one was a foreign company, there will be issues that come up that require you to know some of the international conventions and do things in those countries which will afford you more um, exposure to international cultures, etc. So the way that you can get into international law isn't so much one path, but to the extent you work on issues where the U.S. law has extraterritorial application or the parties are international or if um, you work for a large multinational company and they have foreign subsidiaries, sometimes you might be assigned to a foreign subsidiary, the London office, whatever, and you're going to be required to learn some things that you wouldn't learn um, in the U.S. Also, another way to do it is to do work 
in U.S. law that has extraterritorial application. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that you uh, become an international um, mediator or, or arbitrator or dispute resolution lawyer, and you are um, basically trying a case between a U.S. and a foreign party in a neutral location like London or The Hague, um, it's basically a trial, but it's under um, various conventions that apply, but you're putting on evidence and you don't want to have your trial in the foreign country where the contract mm -hmm. is. You, they don't want to have it in the U.S., so they pick a neutral location, but it's basically a trial. So there are a lot of ways, and if you get involved with the D.C. Bar International Law Community, we have a Lunch with the Lawyer series where you can meet some of our lawyers who practice in this area as well as myself and um, be introduced to contacts there and possibly um, find your way into a practice that has international components. That's great. All very, very great tips and another great resource here at the D.C. Bar Association. So thank you so much, Shari, for joining us today. And thank you to the D.C. Bar Association for hosting us. And thank you both for having me. Thank you. Thanks.